0: This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. We use them every day to learn, design, and strategize. Dry erase boards and now glass marker boards are must-haves in every stage of life. For the visual display products you need and the quality of service you deserve, U.S. Marker Board is the place to go. A full-service shop with a highly trained staff, U.S. Marker Board is able to handle any request, no matter how large or small. Visit usmarkerboard.com today and use the promo code KICK to get 12% off your next order. Again, that's usmarkerboard.com and promo code KICK for 12% off. Come see what U.S. Markerboard can do for you. Support for today's show comes from EverQuote, America's largest online marketplace for auto insurance. Only 5% of drivers pay less than $50 per month for auto insurance nationally. But EverQuote is helping change that with a proprietary matching algorithm that helps you find the right coverage at the right price. In fact, data shows that users who find auto insurance through EverQuote save an average of $536 per year. No wonder over 300,000 shoppers use EverQuote's insurance matching services every day. Take advantage of EverQuote's cutting-edge data and analytics and go to everquote.com slash kick to compare coverage options today. Again, that's everquote.com slash kick. And now, enjoy the show. Hi, I'm Ben Mathis. Welcome to Kick-Ass News. What is the opposite of hate? As a progressive commentator on Fox News and now CNN, Sally Cohn has made a career out of bridging intractable political differences and learning how to talk respectfully with people whose views she disagrees with passionately. Her viral TED Talk on the need to practice emotional rather than political correctness sparked a new way of considering how often we amplify our differences and diminish our connections. But these days, even famously nice Cone says she finds herself wanting to breathe fire at her enemies. So it was time she decided to look into the epidemic of hate all around us and learn how we can stop it. In her new book titled The Opposite of Hate, A Field Guide to Repairing Our Humanity, Cohn talks to leading scientists and researchers to investigate the evolutionary and cultural roots of hate and how incivility can be a gateway to much worse. Today, Sally joins me on the podcast to talk about her travels to Rwanda, the Middle East, and across the United States for the book, talking with former terrorists and white supremacists and even some of her own Twitter trolls, drawing surprising lessons from dramatic and inspiring stories of those who left hate behind. Plus, she discusses confronting some of her own less-than-perfect moments, whether it was back when she bullied a classmate or more recent times when the tone of today's politics and partisan resentment have gotten the best of her. It's an honest and hopeful conversation with CNN's Sally Cohn, coming up in just a moment. Sally Cohn is a CNN political commentator and columnist who frequently writes for The Washington Post, The New York Times, New York Magazine, Cosmopolitan, The Daily Beast, Time, and many others. She recently published her debut book called The Opposite of Hate, A Field Guide to Repairing Our Humanity. Sally Cohn, thanks for coming on the podcast.
1: Hey, so nice to be here.
0: Well, spoiler alert for people, The Opposite of Hate is probably not what most people think.
1: Well, uh, yeah, I think most people would say the opposite of hate is love, right. up is down, good is bad, you know, whatever, like, uh, <laughs> right? And, and and technically, while that is true, in the context of my book, the opposite of hate is not love. It turns out you don't have to love someone to stop hating them. You don't even have to like them. Uh, what, it, it, as I understand it, what you have to do is understand that in spite of our differences and disagreements, which I actually think are important. Mm-hmm. Uh, are part of uh, what make us great as people and as a country, in spite of those differences and disagreements, the idea of connection is that we understand that we are still fundamentally all human, deserve dignity and rights and equality and justice, and see this core connection between us. Uh, And that, to me, understanding that, seeing that, operationalizing that is the opposite of hate.
0: I imagine that there are probably those who think, you know, here's this liberal progressive pundit who goes on CNN every day and argues with conservatives and sometimes things get really heated. So who is she to preach civility and connection like this? What is your response to that?
1: Um, That's a a great question. I, um, you know, I, I, I hope I'm not preaching anything, first of all. But, you know, this for me... This book, this process, this sort of larger quest is part of a journey mm-hmm. uh, for myself because I, as someone who rhetorically talks about equality and justice for all, realized that I wasn't always practicing equality and justice for all, including uh, not uh, upholding and acting as though I believed people who disagree with me were uh in, entitled to the same respect and dignity and fairness and kindness that I was. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and and for me, actually, part of it is, is look, we could argue till the cows come home which side does it worse when it comes to partisan incivility. I happen to have an opinion that it's the right, <laughs> um, and there's some well-founded evidence on that. But honestly, who cares? Because the truth is, what I do also know is that I'm not going to be able to change the right's vitriol and nastiness and, and you know, ad hominem personal attacks. But I can do something about the left,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right, both through my own actions and through, uh, you know, not just trying to always point fingers and hold the other side accountable, but hold my own side accountable to doing better. And that's part of what I hope we'll all do.
0: Yeah. And I think one of the things that distinguishes this book from the myriad of books that came out in response to the 2016 election is you say that this isn't so much a response to the election of Donald Trump as much as it's a response to your own reaction to the election of Donald Trump <laughs> right well
1: i mean the book predated that in uh in a lot of ways honestly okay. i mean my you know the desire i had to understand my own hate and the hate in the world and do something about it it really stems from my lifelong work as an organizer and an activist mm-hmm. and then more recently uh in 2010, 2011, 2012 being a liberal on Fox News and coming face to face with yeah. people who I thought I hated <laughs> and who I thought down. hated me. But, you know, it it's it's the other reality here is that we have this juxtaposition or or paradox if you will of yes, for a lot of people, the 2016 election was this Amplification of hate and and in real ways it was both oh, the yeah. hate that Trump himself was spewing uh the increase in hate crimes and hate groups and right especially uh you know anti muslim organizations anti semitic hate crimes et cetera so yeah. that's real and the the simple reality is that that hate at the core of that is nothing new it's mm-hmm. nothing new to modern american politics it's nothing new to the United States as a whole, that that kind of hate, discord, us versus them, uh, manipulation and and meanness and its manifestation in our hearts and minds and policies and institutions and culture has been a part of this country literally since its inception.
0: Yeah, I applaud your honesty with this book because you you admit before you came over to CNN you came into Fox News with certain biases against uh, certain hosts and viewers and being there i guess opened your eyes to the fact that not everyone is the devil over there maybe although some people very well may be and still are i'm not going to call know. anyone the devil okay what, what not even Roger Ailes i'm the late Roger Ailes know, here's the
1: thing <laughs> let me make let me make a moral point and a practical point okay you know morally I happen to not believe anyone is irredeemable. Mm -hmm. I happen to believe no one is disposable. Uh, That, uh, you know, as Brian Stevenson has said and has written in his incredibly important book, Just Mercy, no person is the worst thing they've ever done in life. I happen to also believe no person is the worst thing they've said in life or the worst thing they've even thought in life. And so from a moral perspective to me, the question is, can I hold that idea and then live that out
0: mm-hmm.
1: in the way I interact with others, including interact interac- the way I interact with those who uh, seem hateful toward me. And at a practical level, f- the, the to me, the other argument f- for this approach is, look, am I creating opportunities, space, invitations for people to change, or am I shutting down doors and opportunities to change? In other words, look, I don't want conservatives, whether they're on air, off air, people watching at home, I don't want them to continue to believe the sets of things I think are hateful in terms of anti-immigrant sentiment and Islamophobia and, you know, defensive tax cuts for the super rich. And I don't want them to continue to believe those things. So I would like to engage in a way that creates the possibility for people to change.
0: Yeah. And as part of that, you did something unusual here. You started engaging with your Twitter trolls, of which you probably have many being a political pundit, (laughs) even talking to them over the phone. Um, Aren't you supposed to just ignore your trolls? What were you hoping to accomplish with that?
1: Well, I mean, I'm obviously not making a habit of it. But, um, (laughs) uh, you know, look, when this is sort of troll 101 here for everyone, uh, and this applies, you know, at Thanksgiving dinner with uh, argumentative family members as much as it does with, you know, people throwing nastiness at you online. Which is when you have that situation, there's really basically three things you can do. One is ignore it. Uh this is the first do no harm strategy. That is a fine strategy. It's uh key to self-protection depending on your, you know, sense of safety and preserving your sanity. That's a <laughs> that's a reasonable choice to make and it can just mean in the case of Twitter or whatever, just literally ignoring it in the case of your, you know, uncle at Thanksgiving, just saying, look, 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 uncle, I, I don't want to do this. Let's talk <laughs> about sports. Let's talk about mm-hmm. music, whatever. So that's option one. Option two is to uh, feed hate with hate, to respond to hate with hate, nastiness with nastiness, et cetera. Um, look, I don't think that solves anything. And uh, in, in fact... All evidence suggests that hate just breeds hate, just breeds hate, just breeds hate, just breeds hate, hate, and an eye for an eye, and the whole world blind, and we know where this goes. Um, And again, I happen to not believe that I, you know, I don't think, I don't feel that hate is the answer to hate. I don't feel uh, that cruelty is the answer to cruelty. I don't feel that injustice is the solution to injustice. So I am generally speaking against and we tend to all do this right where we said well i wasn't being mean they were and so i'm just reacting and responding so if you are if, if i hope people don't do that i hope we do that less and less and then the third option is to respond with kindness compassion grace uh generosity humor even uh you know not where you're mocking someone attacking someone but you're in in some way, shape, or form responding with compassion. And, you know, it's an important point. The racial justice scholar Maya Wiley made at one of my book events uh, a few weeks ago, which is that compassion isn't the same thing as agreement. It means that I am not going to say that for me to be right, you have to be not only wrong, but wiped off the face of the conversation, (laughs) obliterated from the, (laughs) right? I mean, it's, it's, it's to say that, I it's, again, to recognize that connection, that fundamental core humanity yeah. we share, while at the same time having our important disagreements.
0: Yeah, and one of the people that you reached out to on Twitter, I think it was on Twitter, um, had made some kind of a homophobic comment to you. I think he, he called oh, yeah. you a he instead of a she. What did he say when you finally talked to oh,
1: him? Oh, Lordy. <laughs>
0: you know— Turned out he had a crush, Yeah, it
1: did. (laughs) I know. I I didn't see that coming. It was very, um, it reminded me of, uh, you know, like being in elementary school, I guess, where, Uh you know, when another kid has (laughs) a crush on on you, you, and so they kind of pick on you, or they like, you know, poke you or whack Mm -hmm. you, or it sort of reminded me of this kind of, um, of that kind of thing. Um,
0: Yeah. Thin line between love and hate.
1: Well, thin line between love and hate, for sure. And also a reminder, look, talking to all my trolls was a reminder that- you know, as Walt Whitman said, we all contain multitudes.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, again, that none of us are the worst thing we've done or the worst thing we've said or right. the worst thing we've tweeted, that we all also have the capacity for kindness mm-hmm. and for pain, for beauty and for humor and for weird hobbies and, <laughs> you know, mistakes and misinformation. And, uh, you know, to me, I mean, it's interesting. When we call people trolls. It's not even a that's an inherently dehumanizing term, right? I was term, just right? going to
0: ask you if you still use the term trolls can, you because, you, you, do because you talk the, about no, not it's a, categorizing it's a people.
1: Great question. So yeah, it's kind I of a weird I do because it's the paradox. colloquial term, and I, yeah. I raise it here, and I think I raised it in writings so where it's like it's not the right term, and we do need to find a new yeah. term. Because but I mean, it's trolls aren't an ethnic
0: group or something. No, but it's, <laughs> it's, but but it's still online. this otherizing, yeah. dehumanizing thing. Right. It's
1: akin to. Uh, you know, look, it's akin to when Hillary Clinton referred to Trump supporters as deplorables, mm-hmm. basket of deplorables. Mm-hmm. By the way, you don't put people in baskets, right? You put things in <laughs> baskets, deplorables. Yeah. Be- you know what I mean? It's like It's a dehumanizing yeah. Yeah. term. And I, again, I think we all should be careful of that. But for me coming from the left, especially as someone who is so vigilant, or tries to be vigilant, when I feel like dehumanizing language is used against the communities that i spend my time trying to speak up for fight for and defend uh to then kind of look the other way <laughs> when dehumanizing language is used mm-hmm. against others who i mean it's just it's like it's it's yeah. it's never
0: right I wonder, are there cases where a medium like Twitter or Facebook has had the opposite effect, where maybe it's broadened someone's peer group and challenged their assumptions and actually helped people overcome their biases?
1: Like a lot of things, it can be used for good, it can be used for evil. So, you know, if you are a, you know, kid or not so much a kid, and you're in a part of the country, growing up in a part of the country where there aren't that many people of color, uh, you know, maybe there aren't that many black folks, maybe there aren't that many uh, or any Muslims or any Jews or you know, you don't know anyone who's gay or maybe you're in a part of the country where you don't know anyone who's a liberal, you don't know anyone who's a conservative. Social media also allows us to make those kinds of connections, both mm-hmm. the internet in general and our ability to search and learn and have all that connectivity at our fingertips and actually make those connections if we use it that way. And, and then in the book, I give examples of people who literally left hate movements left hate movements because of the kindness that they were shown online by the people who they were taught to hate
0: what's amazing in here is you talk about how so often it can be just the most unremarkable thing you know in one case you have a former skinhead that you talked to who it was as simple as just going to a party and connecting with people who like the same music
1: you know um we like to think In general that horrible things are done by uniquely horrible people Mm
0: -hmm.
1: that's part of the way we tell ourselves it can't happen to us that we couldn't do those things so in the book I look at things like genocide and the fact that you know as one philosopher said to me in the book we have mass atrocities because masses of people participate in them that's why they become mass atrocities uh and, and similarly we like to think, okay, neo-Nazis, white supremacists here in the United States, oh, they're so aberrant and out there and extreme and and fortunately to some extent they are. Fortunately, that's true, although less aberrant uh today than they were uh you know several years ago that we see a rise mm-hmm. and, and a sort of resurgence of visibly overt, explicit uh white power. Movements in the United States today. Um, and still, the other piece we have to reckon with is uh, that, you know, there is research that shows, not just in ex uh, white power members and violent right wing extremists and violent extremists in general, that they don't come to those groups primarily because of the identity. So it's not like you've yeah. kind of become a hardened. Whatever, That's fascinating. And, right, but the research shows and the language that scholars use is that they, they, they seek out and are lured into the group by a, the desire for a sense of belonging, and then they slide into the ideology. Now, we've, we see this with terrorist recruitment. We see this mm-hmm. with gang recruitment. They're looking for not people who have a particular hardened and extreme ideology, per se, who have aspects of it it's there, but who are feeling lonely, disassociated, disaffected, and looking for the safety, security, and uh, support of the group. Mm-hmm. And then the ideology becomes the way they bond by deepening yeah. their commitment to the ideology.
0: But but why do people like this skinhead try to find belonging through hate? Why not join a softball team or a book club? Why keep such ugly company?
1: Well, that's, you know, that's an interesting question. And I mean, that sort of perpetual paradox is at the core of my book in my life's quest. Yeah. But I think there's two things we have to recognize and in a way sit with the discomfort of, which is, um, one, that even when he was in that lifestyle, and lifestyle is such the wrong word, he was in that <laughs> life. Let's go with he was in that life. Um, and uh, And in general, looking at research from current, you know, current neo-Nazis and current terrorists, mm-hmm. They don't think they're hateful. So they don't see themselves. I, I talked to a, a you know a terrorist interrogator who worked for the U.S. Army who did work in Afghanistan, including at Abu Ghraib, and she said, look, most people believe their motivations are good. Mm-hmm. So that's the first thing. It's not like he's... Again, it's not like most people wake up in the morning saying, intending to be hateful, meaning to be hateful. The second thing, uh, again, in the case of this one ex-white supremacist and in general, that I think we as Americans we as human beings need to just acknowledge and then uh wrestle with the implications of is look in modern in the modern United States of America it is not a massive leap and jump to go from uh you know sort of mainstream mindset to radical white supremacy in part because the ideology that core idea of white supremacy and racial difference mm-hmm. uh is at the not only at the core of our nation's founding and formation but remains fairly intact and unchallenged today and mm. manifest in our policies and systems and institutions and interactions and the, every the way that everything from our schools to our prisons, to our government, to our media are shaped, created and perpetuated. So okay. it wasn't like he yeah. had some idea about race that was wildly out of step. Okay.
0: So there's a foundation with, for this. People don't just join skinheads out of the blue.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, it it's worth noting yeah. that, hmm. you know, that, that there's a reason why you know, I look in the book at the example of bullying and people say, okay, well, bullying isn't hate. Yes, it's not the same thing, right? Being a bully and being a neo-Nazi are obviously not the same thing. <laughs> and the kids most likely to be bullied in school are kids of color, are kids who are gender nonconforming, or grow up to be lesbian, gay, bisexual, mm-hmm. transgender, kids who are poor, kids with disabilities. Similarly, the, you know, overt hate groups in this country uh tend to not target christians not target straight white men not ta- right they are yeah. you know misogynist men's rights groups and yeah. they're you know anti-immigrant so it's the, the same so it's mm-hmm. not just low hanging fruit yeah. it's an exacerbation of an ideology of at, at a mentality that is to some extent present consciously or unconsciously Within all of us and within mm-hmm. the society as a whole. And that's the piece where, again, we spend a lot of time pointing our fingers at the other side, the other people, the extremes. The, and to start to see those dynamics in ourselves mm-hmm. and unravel them, I think, is a key piece of the solution.
0: We're going to take a quick break, and then I'll be back with more with Sally Cohn when we come back in just a moment. Support for today's show comes from Zippa. You folks know what a sleep fanatic I am. It's essential to your physical and emotional health and the health of your relationship. And that's why I'm happy to welcome a new sponsor to the show, Zippa. That's happy Z spelled backwards. It's more than a snoring device. Zippa is an American-made boil-and-bite mouth guard that's a game changer in the bedroom. While other snoring devices only have one feature, they either advance the lower jaw or stabilize the tongue, Zippa does both. There are no other snoring solutions like this in the world. Not to mention, the cost is less than $100, and since Zippa custom molds to your mouth, it's so comfortable you don't even know it's there. Plus, it's been cleared by the FDA as safe and effective. But look, if you aren't happy with the product, you can return it within 90 days for a full refund. And it's no surprise that Zippa has five-star customer service and strives to maintain the highest reviews and ratings. Now, I wanted to test this product out, so I asked some of my friends about their own snoring problems and gave it to the one who had the worst case of snoring. He snores so loud that oftentimes his wife sleeps in the guest room rather than endure another sleepless night. Now that's the kind of thing that can really take a toll on a marriage. He followed Zippa's easy instructions, molded the boil-and-bite mouth guard to fit him, and went to bed. The very first night, he and his wife had their first peaceful, quiet night's sleep in years. So try Zippa and start enjoying Happy Z's every night, for your sake and the sake of the people sleeping near you. Just go to Zippa, Z-Y-P-P-A-H, dot com to learn more and use my code KICK for free shipping. That's Zippa, Z-Y-P-P-A-H, dot com and code KICK for free shipping. And now, back to the podcast. You get into this idea of the inside group and the outside group. It makes me wonder, is there something innately hateful or at least alienating about forming groups? Should we maybe eliminate chess clubs and football teams in high school? And is it possible to be part of a group without otherizing, as you say in the book?
1: So that's a fantastic question. Um, I don't think so. First of all, it goes back to that hardware software. We like groups. Mm-hmm. We like to be – we like an us versus a them. And there are st- you know, study after study that I detail in the book where – even kind of given free reign, people do tend to form groups. Yeah. So, the and also importantly, forming groups can be the solution, or at least part of the solution, to some of the yeah. inherent biases that play out in the group speak. So, for instance, there have been yeah. studies where you take, uh, you know, you take subjects, you first do, you know, a, a battery of tests to look at their the unconscious bias and even overt bias that they walk into the room with at mm-hmm. the beginning of the study. Then you conduct a study where you say, for instance, all right, we're going to just have two teams here, the Lions and the Tigers. And nobody, you don't point it out, you don't mention, you just, we, you see which team you're on and you see the other people on your team and notice that they are, a, it is a multiracial, diverse group of people. And just by being told you're on the team <laughs> with these other folks, suddenly... Subjects unconscious racial bias goes down <laughs> wow so it's 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 about salience yeah. and primacy, right, and you notice, for instance, that in moments of you know when we have sort of nationalist threats, right when you see nationalism go it's just, right, it, right we, it's we can unifying. supplant some mm-hmm. groups with other groups, right some yeah. people have said the best thing that could happen to the world to earth is for us to discover aliens. <laughs> Because yeah, then we'd have someone enemy. we could have a common, yeah. common enemy, right? <laughs> the question is can we can we have constructive
0: groups mm-hmm.
1: right? Um, connective groups rather than, divisive groups.
0: Yeah, and that gets to this study that you were just kind of alluding to, where they put two different groups of kids at a summer camp, and they pitted them against each other, but the kids caught on to it, and they turned on the counselors, who were really, I guess, researchers who were studying them. I think it says something about the potential for us to rebel against being manipulated either by the media or politicians.
1: I'm so glad you saw that point. Um, This is a very famous in sort of social psychology Circles, a very famous study called Robber's Cave, Mm -hmm. where uh, a researcher named Muzaffar Sharif had taken a bunch of white boys, ages 10 ish, 11 ish, uh, and put them into two separate camp groups in the woods at a campsite at a camp called Robber's Cave, hence the name of the study. And the version of the study that was reported was this very cut-and-dry version where there was a three-week study. In the first week, the boys were separated into two groups. They had no idea the other group existed. And they instantaneously and seemingly on their own formed group identity. So they would come, you know, they each voluntarily came up with names for their groups. They didn't know another group existed. They thought they were the only ones at the camp. But they came up with a name for their group. They ended up with their own little (laughs) habits and culture. They had the place, the certain route they liked to take the swimming hole and whatever. Um, Okay, that was week one. Week two, they had the groups discover each other. One was sort of overheard, like they kind of saw them. The other was they were more directly told. And fairly instantaneously, to hear the researchers tell it, uh, they were... Fighting, they were against. They were antagonizing. They developed this us. So they'd already developed a sense of the us, and now they had the them, mm-hmm. and they operationalized that them in terms of they wanted to compete, but they also sort of hurled slurs about each other. Eventually, they were pulling kind of mean pranks. Then they were pulling actually gratuitous pranks yeah. that involve violence. All in because
0: favor. they were just separate groups. All just because Man- manufactured they were separate the, groups. Totally third, artificial. And then huh. in the
1: third, the researchers said, okay, now. They created basically a common disaster, a water pipe problem that the kids had to then work to fix. And it ended up bringing them together to the point where by the end of the third week, by the end of the study, they were like pooling their money for candy and, you know, like all mixed up during, you know, sitting on the buses and on movie night. But the thing that few people know, even in this field, is that there were two previous versions of the study and the two previous versions of the study went completely bust. Because in some form or another, the short version is in some form or another, both times the kids realized they were being manipulated by, (laughs) because the whole study, the way it's written about in the third, right, this third and public iteration, the the one that's most shared is that there were these two groups, but there's really a third group, the researchers. Yeah. And they were there masquerading as counselors and they had this, they had (laughs) an intent and their intent was to pit to develop these sort of firm groups and pit them against each other. And that matters. And so the fact that it helped to me, it reminds us the importance of our politics, our institutions, our structures, our history, our culture, uh, our media, and the role that they play in setting up these vicious and hateful us-them dynamics and the fact that we, like those kids in the first two studies, can actually notice that that's happening and rebel against it.
0: You referenced this sort of manipulated conflict in talking about the Rwanda genocide. Mm -hmm. Um, You visited Rwanda and talked with victims and perpetrators. There were actually cases of people who were good friends and neighbors, Mm -hmm. extremely close friends, turning against each other and murdering their friends and relatives in some cases. How do you even begin to explain that?
1: Um, Well, let's be clear. The military and the state was also right. exceptionally, it. They, no, no, it was also directly of, yes. physically involved yes, as well. Yes. I don't want to, I, I don't yes. want to, but uh, civilians uh, but also, no, no, uh, oh, entirely. And before I went to Rwanda, you know, I'd done my reading and uh, I'd heard that people killed their neighbors and their friends. And I, I, I thought, in the sense of like, imagine my own block and the kind of people that live on my block who I know but don't know well, maybe don't know their names, people. Slaughtered their godchildren. Wow. Yeah, people who killed the people they have Sunday supper with every week, or their brother-in-law, or their, and and it was done. You know, the Rwandan genocide was the fastest genocide in world history. Eight hundred thousand people killed in a hundred days. And so much. So it was both the this, this, the swiftness of it, but also the intimacy of the brutality that I think. People used in a lot of cases. It was that people used machetes to commit these mm-hmm. acts, which is very, you know, it's different than just as hor- horrific as it is to flip the switch of, uh, you know, a gas chamber. I mean, it, it, you are killing someone intimately and up close. For me, that was the hardest part of the book to research. It's the hardest part to write. I still think it's the hardest part to read. And again, to my point from before, not a handful of psychopaths, all of us. I mean. Any of us, most of the Hutu population in Rwanda was in some way implicated or involved. And same thing, you know, you look at Germany, you look at Serbia, these weren't just a few crazy people. In in every other way, otherwise normal people Mm -hmm. who then did, because of circumstances, situation, did extraordinarily, unthinkably horrific things. And we have to wrestle with and reckon with Uh, and understand that that is something we are all capable of. This is not just this country, just this region, Just we are all capable of it.
0: And you say that perhaps a lot of the the impetus for the Rwandan genocide, as well as the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, probably even the Nazi atrocities, go back to something called competitive victimhood, which I think is very relevant here in the U.S. right now, in fact. Uh, Explain that idea for us.
1: It is you'll you sort of you're you're right you'll see it play out in lots of dynamics but the idea of competitive victimhood comes from the scholarship uh, around what uh, you know academics in this area call intractable conflicts it's a really potent term for me because you think it is literally saying (laughs) this is a conflict that cannot be fixed yeah it is unsolvable in the case of the book I um. Uh, I went to Israel, Palestine, because when we think right. about intractable conflicts in the world right now, that's
0: that's the poster child.
1: That's the po- and and in in <laughs> yeah. so many ways, it's the example that everyone points to. Mm-hmm. So, it is the you know example that uh, you know people point to to you know this act or that act uh, out of context to justify Islamophobia and painting you know a whole religion of people with a Ugly broad stroke. And it's also you look at uh, the rhetoric of some terrorist organizations and they point to and paint uh, a few incidences and examples of what Israelis have done. And by extension, then they attribute it to Jews. And and right. So it's it, it's this very it's both intractable there and then it has these sort of intractable implications in a yeah.
0: way yeah everyone's um, the hero of their own story i guess to some that's extent
1: that's a great way of describing competitive victimhood or rather in this case everyone's the victim of someone else's story <laughs> yeah and yeah. and you know and that the dynamic through history right when sort of uh you know oppression and victimization build and build and build and build and build, and build is It's a version of what we were talking about before where we're always pointing the finger. So we Mm -hmm. can always say, but look what they did. They did this first. And it's because they did that that then we did this. We wouldn't have done this if they hadn't (laughs) done that. And both sides feel that way. And it's not that either story each side tells is wholly wrong or unwrong. It's that it takes on and it, it becomes this narrative of who's suffering the most, whose victimization is the worst, but then tends to obscure any... Culpability, or even responsibility or accountability, mm-hmm. for one's own role, however big or small, however relative, in victimizing others.
0: Now I just have to ask: You're Jewish. Weren't you afraid to go to the Palestinian territory? <laughs> oh
1: my gosh! I, uh, this question fascinates me. Not for a second, and it really does go to <laughs> no. But it it really? go, yeah no, it goes to. But this is interesting, right? Because you're not, by the way, the first person to ask me. That. I'm, I'm sure, sure you're I'm not the last. Of that. <laughs> and People, you know, a lot of folks, by the way, a lot of uh, Jews and non-Jews in the United States, a lot of folks in Jerusalem were horrified. I mean, we're talking people who live, you know, a 10-minute drive from the West Bank Yeah, and have never been. They have ideas that have been fed by history and misinformation and propaganda and scapegoating, and right, about who Palestinians are, who Muslims are, what this region of the world is like, et cetera, et cetera, mm. et cetera. And... I, as an American, had more freedom of movement hmm. than Palestinians. Yeah. So you're aware of all yeah. those things, and it was a beautiful, lovely, perfectly safe, wonderful place to be with, you know, shops and cafes, and, like, parts of it could have been, like, downtown Brooklyn, and, <laughs> the you know, some of the best bread and hummus and olive oil I've had in my entire life, and I would go back in a heartbeat, mm-hmm. and alongside— neighborhoods that have been shut down, land confiscated. You know, but no, it's a beautiful place to visit. And one of the (laughs) things I actually love and I talk about in the book are, you know, there are organizations that are that both you want a day trip, you want a longer trip, Uh uh, organized tours, Mm -hmm. you know, because people don't, they don't know. You don't know what you don't know and you don't know what you haven't seen. And it's important, Mm -hmm. I think, to get, Uh, in this example and in general, to get out of your box.
0: Yeah, and while you were there, you talked to a man who had been a terrorist. He had gone to prison and had a change of heart when he was shown a film about the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. And now he says that while he still sees Israelis as the enemy... At the very least, he, he doesn't have any hate for them. He may even have some love for them. Thank How you. How do we foster these situations? How do we create connection space and opportunities for what they call golden conversations, which is not a conversation between yes. Donald Trump and two hookers? I know, I know. <laughs> I, I,
1: I renamed I'm that sure phrase that in my book because I thought it was a little creepy. <laughs> yeah. um, w- yes, it is important. This is to the example you're giving from uh, Israel-Palestine, Bassem. You know, his whole childhood, the only Israelis he knew were soldiers. Up until he went to prison, the only Israeli he had ever met or seen, not even met, seen was a soldier harassing, attacking, killing his community. By the way, also the only Jew he ever knew because to him they were the same thing. So he only knew Israelis and Jews as a violent occupying force. And meeting, hearing stories of and meeting and knowing Israelis and Jews in general, not in that context, was a part, not the whole, but a part of him getting beyond hate, not letting go of his beliefs, his convictions, his advocacy on behalf for Palestinian rights and, and freedom and justice, um, but doing it from a place of not hate. Uh, and similarly, in the United States, look, the majority of Americans don't know anyone who's Muslim. You know, three quarters of white Americans don't have any non-white friends. Hmm. These are, again, it's not the whole answer, not the whole problem, it's not the whole answer, but it, it's it's definitively a piece mm-hmm. of what then allows hate and division, including hate and division in our policies and our politics to mm-hmm. fester.
0: Yeah, and I want to emphasize again just how simple these moments of connection can be.
1: Yes and no. Right. I mean, it's it's it's.
0: But it can be the smallest thing. Like we said, uh, you know, you have a neo-Nazi who suddenly gives up his ideology because he has people who like the same music or he goes right. to a party. I mean, that it was
1: that it was these it,
0: meets a girl. That
1: it's not that it isn't. Again, if we recognize that the people who are even at the overt extreme ends of hate. Mm-hmm. Are not, and this was like. And by the way, there's research that bears this out. I talked to a lot of ex, you know, ex-terrorist, ex-neo Nazis, with similar striking stories where you think, okay, it must have taken some radical, you know, act of yeah. neo God to <laughs> get you out of this, and it's just like, you know, and it's, and it's, it's, it's uncomfortable to recognize how casually, in a way, mm-hmm. people slipped into these hate movements, yeah. and these extremist hate movements, and at the same time. It's encouraging to realize how somewhat casually they can slip out now i'm not again, I'm not giving people a pass. I mm-hmm. want to be clear, I'm not giving people a pass for the overt and horrifically hateful things they've done. What we tend to do is write people off as entirely that yeah, you are a hateful monster, you are only a hateful monster you it's all you'll ever be, yeah. and so to me, for my life, my choice, my path is. What can I do to help create opportunities where we aren't just calling people out but calling people in and giving them opportunities to change?
0: Well, before we go, you start and finish the book by talking about a girl who you picked on when you were a kid in school and how years later you actually went to the trouble to hire a private investigator to track her down. Um, I don't want to give away too much. <laughs> you already. Warned I mean, I gave me a TED talk Rwandan on it. no, no, no. It's just <laughs> so, that one story. But, I like okay. people to
1: discover that story on their own.
0: What were you wanting to know or say to her, and and what happened when you finally got a hold of her?
1: Oh, um, well, I'll say this much: that it's uh, for me, I I think I knew. Of course, of course I wanted to apologize. Um, I wanted to know that i hadn't ruined her life uh that she had that she was okay and i wanted to apologize and i i think i knew intellectually that apologies aren't entitled to forgiveness that they those two things exist in separate spaces and and it's and it's but then I had and then I actually had to live it and experience it and and apologize without feeling in any way shape or form entitled to her forgiveness she, because she didn't forgive me and nor should she. That's obviously entirely uh her choice and it's important I think I hope it's an important metaphor for all of us who recognize that in a way you have to sometimes do what's right even in the face of Whatever justification you feel you have otherwise, and similarly that you're you know to do, I hope, to be kind, compassionate, gracious, forgiving, even even when others are not necessarily being so, that to me, I hope, is one of the lessons people take away.
0: Well, I really enjoyed the book. It's called "The Opposite of Hate: A Field Guide to Repairing Our Humanity." And you can catch Sally Cohn regularly on CNN. Sally, thanks for talking with me.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Thanks again to Sally Cohn for coming on the podcast. Order her new book, The Opposite of Hate, a field guide to repairing our humanity on Amazon or Audible. Subscribe to her podcast, The State of Resistance, on iTunes or wherever you get podcasts, and keep up with her at sallycohn.com or follow her on Twitter at, at Sally Cohn. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to Kick-Ass News on iTunes and leave us a review. You can follow us on Facebook or on Twitter at, at @KickAssNewsPod. News Pod. And as always, I welcome your comments, questions, and ideas at comments at kickassnews.com. I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kick-Ass News.